Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest today is Aaron Berman. Aaron is a professor emeritus of history at MCR College and is the author of America's Arab Nationalist, From the Ottoman Revolution to the Rise of Hitler, published by Routledge in 2023. America's Arab Nationalist looks at the relationship between Arab nationalists and Americans in the struggle for independence in an era when idealistic Americans could see the Arab nationalist struggle as an expression of their own values. In the first three decades of the 20th century, from the 1908 Ottoman Revolution to the rise of Hitler, important and influential Americans, including members of the small Arab American community, participated intellectually politically and financially in the construction of Arab nationalism. And this book tells the story of a diverse group of people whose contributions are largely unknown to the American public today. The role of Americans played in the development of Arab nationalism has been largely unexplored by historians. Some of these names may be familiar, but not necessarily their work and contribution to the development of Arab nationalism. With Professor Berman, we will talk about uh, nationalism. We will talk about uh, characters like uh, Howard Bliss or Charles Crane and others. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Aaron, welcome. Thank you very much and thank you for having me, Roberta. I just want to start with a busy question, so if you can... You know, tell us something about your background, but more importantly, about the origins of this book. Sure. Um, so uh, I was trained as, a, as an American historian at Columbia University with kind of a secondary field in modern Jewish history. And my dissertation and first book um, was, on the, was on American Zionism and the Holocaust, which, which really began when, in a lot of ways, when I was an undergraduate at Hampshire College and met my mentor, uh, David Wyman. Um, and what I argued in that book was, uh, or really looked at in that book, was why did American Zionists during World War II put their primary emphasis on statehood rather than efforts to rescue Jews being threatened with extermination? And uh, after that was published, I began a research project on wartime, uh, Second World War era America and attitudes about the post war world, which really was about attitudes about nationalism and internationalism, where I kind of broadened out my understanding of nationalism. And at the same time, I was uh, starting uh, full-time in 1981, teaching at uh, Hampshire College in Amherst, Mass, Massachusetts. And I started teaching a course on Zionism, uh, which just was really a history of Zionism. And uh, after a while, I really realized that to teach a course on Zionism without dealing with Palestinian history 
was, uh, I think, intellectually and, and actually morally bankrupt. And uh, so I did a lot of, started doing a lot of reading uh, to change the course. And um, I just became fascinated with not only Palestinian history, but with Ottoman history and Middle Eastern history, regretting that I got my degree in American history and wished I could do it all over again. Um, but it, um, and, and also at the same time, I was serving an 11 year uh, term as the dean of faculty at, at Hampshire, which uh, I, I kept teaching, but couldn't do much writing. But when I was done being dean, I was looking for a way now of combining my expertise in American history with my interest in Ottoman and Middle Eastern history. And I, I at that point, uh, which was quite some time ago, also in the uh, uh, probably around 1908, I'm sorry, 2008, 2009, was um, there wasn't a lot of material yet on, on American Arab nationalism. And at that point, at least what I saw dealt mostly with post-World War II era and the rise of Nasser and focused a lot on diplomatic history. Um, and I, I wanted to sort of see how Americans responded to Arab nationalism. That's what I thought I would do at first. And wanting to start in an earlier period uh, with the 1908 Ottoman Revolution. And um, what I discovered over time was that it wasn't only Americans responding to notions of Arab nationalism, but in effect, some Americans becoming Arab nationalists themselves or allies of Arab nationalists. Plenty has been written about America in the Middle East and America in the Middle East, particularly after World War II. Still, not much has been written about the earlier relations between the United States and the Ottoman Empire. Now, some of the most important works uh, are, I would say, now out of date or often too much centered on America alone. Your book is looking at Arab nationalism, how Americans understood it or misunderstood it, and also how, as you just mentioned, some Americans were actually actively Arab nationalists themselves. So... Could you tell us a little more about the sources used and where your book is located in the literature and historiographies of both American history and Arab nationalism? Sure. Um, well, I, I love archival research. You know, my idea of a good time would be getting locked up overnight in an archive. So, uh, um, you know, and in the end, I think I used something like 18 discrete manuscript sources and I know we'll mention some of these characters as, as time goes on, but just to touch on some of the collections, the, the Bliss Family Papers, um, which are located at Amherst College, um, have a lot of interesting material on Howard Bliss, who was the first president of Syrian Protestant College, now American University in Beirut. And um, uh, a, a really interesting collection. Um, I... Um, you know, knew that that Charles Crane was a figure in this in this period of time in terms of the history of the Middle East and and Arab nationalism, and his papers are at uh, Columbia. And um, there's a um, a beautiful inventory of the papers there. They're quite extensive, but they they tend to focus. The inventory tends to emphasize more his his interests in things Russian, um, and um, but, you know, I found some material and I and uh, the way I kind of was trained was just try to look at everything. And 
I just came across an amazing amount of material on Crane in the Middle East and Crane on Islam, which was just really interesting. Um, the William Yale papers, um, Yale was uh, in a lot of ways the uh, the nemesis in the narrative, I guess. But uh, Yale was um, uh, an American diplomat and American in military intelligence figure in uh uh, in the Middle East in the World War One era, and his papers are at Yale and are actually um, quite extensive also. And also he was something of a pack rat, and he kept everything, which was great because there was lots of material that he had just collected, which was really interesting. And then um, one of the other figures I'm sure we'll talk about is Abraham Rabani, who was uh, uh, in the early 20th century, a well-known uh, Arab-American minister and author. And there actually isn't that much archival material um, easily found for him. Uh, there's some papers um, of his papers and his papers of his congregation at the Divinity School at Harvard. But, you know, I had one of those surprises you get when you do research. I went off to Minnesota to use the Philippity papers and thinking that there would be a good amount of material on Rahani because I knew that Hitty and Rahani had a relationship. But to my surprise, I found much more material on Rabani there, which was really interesting. Um, in, in terms of the historiography, since I've been working on the book, which I've been working on for quite some time, a number of books have come out, which um, I, I think my book uh, complements or fits into um, this approach to the history. Um, uh, I like especially Elizabeth Thompson's book, How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs, um, which is on the Syrian Arab Congress of 1920, but really focuses on what she calls the destruction of the historic liberal Islamic uh, alliance, which I thought was really fascinating and, and deals to some extent with Americans as well. Um, Stacey Farentold's Between the Ottomans and the Entente on the, uh, on the Syrian diaspora is, I think, excellent. Um, uh, Hani Bawardi's The Making of Arab Americans is also quite good. And um, I also found quite helpful, although we, we didn't completely agree with each other on certain things about how you periodize uh, the history, but Usama McDesey's Faith Misplaced, uh, The Broken Promise of U.S.-Arab Relations, which deals with the whole period of 1820 to 2001, is an excellent book and uh, survey of the whole period. So I find my book kind of fitting into that, those categories. Um, I also should mention what I found quite helpful in helping to shape my own approach was uh, an article by Reem Bailoni on, the, uh, on transnationalism in the Syrian migrant public, which uh, focuses a lot on the 1925 Syrian revolt against the uh, French. Yeah, and I was just thinking that recently uh, for both the New Books uh, Network and also my own podcast, Jerusalem Unplugged, I interviewed Nadim Bawas, who just published a book about transnational Palestine, looking at uh, the uh, migration towards Latin America, which is another component. It's very interesting also how Arab nationalism was understood by and spread by Palestinians in Latin America, which obviously is different from the context of the, of the United States. Uh I want to ask you something about chronology because I found it very interesting. Uh, why did you end with the rise of Hitler? That's a good question. Um, so very early in my research, I mean, one of the first um, collections I went through were the Crane Papers. 
and Crane um, had correspondence with George Antonius, you know, of course, the great Arab nationalist uh, author, but also political figure himself. And um, Crane was was a patron of Antonius's, and uh, Antonius even, I think, dedicates the, uh, uh, the uh, his great book on on Arab nationalism to Crane. Um, but in it's a, it's a letter or a report from July of 1933, where uh, he's talking about Jewish immigration, refugee immigration to Palestine, as essentially um, strengthening the Zionist position and weakening the Arab position. And essentially, what Antonius is saying is the uh, the coming of of uh, this now law, this increased number of Jews emerging into Palestine, fleeing Hitler and another persecution was essentially changing everything, you know, that the political landscape in Palestine itself. And, um, you know, it kind of clicked that 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 made sense to end the book there, I thought. And it also confirmed my sense from when I did my first book on American Zionism, that it's really um, that, that if you look at American Zionism in the World War One period, um, there's a there's a period of of kind of growth for a while when Louis Brandeis assumes head of the of the organization, but then membership declines afterwards. And in no way would you say that uh, American Zionists spoke for the American Jewish community. And um, that changed. What I argued in my first book was that changed in 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 the World War II era, both with the in the refugee crisis in the 30s. And then particularly with the response to the extermination, that um, the American Zionist movement grew in strength and was on the path to becoming, you know, the, to achieving its hegemonic position within the American Jewish community. So I, I, I kind of argue in the book that um, that before 1933, it was possible for Americans to think about Arab nationalism, to think about the Arab world, the Middle East without seeing it through the lens of um of of the of uh of zionism or the lens of how is this going to affect uh jews uh jewish refugees or palestine that uh palestine was a factor but not the overwhelming factor that it, that it was to become in determining american responses now rather than following the uh chronology of the book i would like to um focus on the main characters of your work and um, you know obviously you already mentioned some of them but before actually dealing with uh, with a single characters i want to ask you something about uh, nationalism uh, i want to ask about your definition of nationalism but more importantly i'm curious about how nationalism was defined and understood uh, in the period covered by your book yeah thank you um so it may be somewhat old fashioned, but you know, my own sense of nationalism was really shaped by Hans Cohen, who in 1944 writes his great book, uh, The Idea of Nationalism. And uh, Benedict Anderson, who I find in a lot of ways follows into Cohen's footsteps. And, um, uh, you know, kind of my quick definition of nationalism is that it's a concept that unites individuals around the shared idea that they are a people you know, with a shared past and destiny and deserve to exercise political sovereignty. Um, and following from that approach, what I'm particularly interested in nationalist narratives, um, you know, that I, I would argue that nationalisms have to have a story that explains why they're a nation. 
Um, and uh, my my working kind of hypothesis, or when I when I deal with these narratives, is that the nationalist narratives are always or almost always contested and in flux. That um, people can use the same symbols and the same rhetoric and have extremely different notions of what the nation is. And just to use an American example, um, in 1925, you can find photographs and even some film footage of this. The Ku Klux Klan holds a march through Washington, D.C., you know, marching with American flags. You know, for them, America, America is a white nation. And that define and they're using those symbols that way. In uh, 1939, Marian Anderson, the great African-American opera singer, um, has a concert at on the Lincoln Memorial, which in a lot of ways, if you look at the film of that, it looks a lot like a civil rights demonstration from the 1960s. And she sings there, My Country Tis of Thee. So again, the same symbols, but an entirely different notion of what, what does it mean to be an American? Um, and I also, just in terms of those narratives, I, I remind myself, and I, I say in the book, but when I was teaching, I would remind my students that, you know, reading theories of nationalism could be really interesting, but it, it sometimes misses the point that there's an emotional component to nationalism that people are willing to kill and even more amazingly be killed for this idea. And that, um, you know, understanding that somehow these stories hit an emotional chord and that that's really basic uh, if the if the movement is going to succeed. Um, in terms of like how Arab nationalism is understood in America, um, I think, first of all, you know, it is distant. The characters are distant from the the, uh, the actual land itself, you know. So there's there's a little more fuzziness, I think, in their definition. Um, in the early period, through I would say the imposition of the um, mandate system uh, following, you know, World War One. You know, it leans to kind of a, a pan-Arab nationalism or a pan-Syrian nationalism. Um, uh, but, that, you know, it's not necessarily articulated very clearly. I think in the in the ethnic communities, in the Arab-American community more so. Um, what I find is that after the imposition of the uh, mandate system, uh, people like Crane, uh, like Rahani, like Rabani keep working within those structures, they're supporting movements now in, in Syria or in Palestine. But at least for some of them, uh, this sort of larger notion of a pan-Arab nationalism is still there, C certainly with Rouhani. Um, Crane, it's harder to tell, but certainly with someone like uh, Amin Rouhani. You mentioned something that reminded me of uh, how also the concept of nationalism changed for our time. And uh, you know, growing up myself uh, in Italy in the 70s and 80s, obviously, uh, nationalism has always been portrayed as something negative because of what happened in World War II. And so for me, it's kind of like shocking to see the rebirth of that kind of nationalism that would bring people possibly to kill others in name of an ideology. But, you know, we have to move uh, uh, away from this. Uh, and I really want to start with uh, one of the main characters of your book, uh, uh, Howard Bliss, uh, the president of a Syrian Protestant college in Beirut. Uh, 
you know, Bliss was um, the son of Daniel Bliss, the founder of the uh, college. And, uh, you know, he was a missionary. His father's a missionary. He, he's from a missionary background. And um, I have to confess, when I started work on this, I had a kind of just negative stereotype of missionaries. And um, so I went into the archive assuming I wasn't going to like him very much, but I got to actually have a lot of respect for him and like actually like him a great deal to, to, to the point I have to sometimes remind myself, you know, you have to maintain a critical stance. But um, he was a very interesting character. Um, it's uh, in terms of just how you do research and, you know, a luck factor involved is um, at least in the correspondence I saw, he tends to be very private um, about what he's really thinking, um, except for when he writes, writes to his wife, uh, whose name was Amy. And uh, he only writes to her when they're apart. And uh, luckily for, for you know, scholars, um, so when the 1908 revolution occurs and the Young Turks CUP uh, Committee for Union and Progress come to power, uh, Bliss is quite supportive. Um, and um, um, he describes um, walking around Beirut. You can find in the sources, by the way, lots of other examples of this, but being struck by in the immediate post-revolutionary period, um, how uh, Muslims were going into synagogues, how Jews were going into mosques, how Christians were going, you know, going into synagogues and, and mosques, and just that there was a really new sense of freedom, um, you know, and um, so Bliss um, is supportive of this, um, and not, he leaves in, um, shortly afterwards and goes on vacation, a fundraising trip to, to the, the States. So he leaves his family behind in Beirut. And what happens then is that um, apparently Muslim students at the college approach Jewish students at the college. And at the time, um, uh, Syrian Protestant College had moved away from, Bliss's goal wasn't to convert people to Christianity, to Protestantism. The more the notion of providing a good American education, but still um, Bible classes and and um, chapel, which were obviously Christian services, were mandatory for students. And the Muslim students, the students uh, are, are arguing, look, in this new spirit of the new Ottoman nation where we're all equal, we don't want to go to church. We don't want to go to chapel and we don't want to have to have a mandatory Bible class. So they boycott. And Bliss starts getting letters from his mother. Uh, his father is deceased at this point, but his mother is describing this as a, as a revolution. And she's quite upset. And Bliss um, gets on a boat and get, heads back to Beirut. Um, he um, is obviously quite worried about what he's going to, how he's going to uh, respond to this. Um, and again, his separated from his wife. So he's, you see all this in his correspondence. He he sympathizes a lot with the students, but he also knows that a good number of the faculty who are American missionaries, as well as the trustees who endow the, the, the people who provide the finances for the college, American um, uh, missionaries and, uh, Christ, and, uh, and Christian figures are not going to be happy with this. And so he arrives back in Beirut and he... Um, uh, 
quickly kind of negotiates a compromise with the students that, but he then tries to do more than that. And um, uh, I was quite influenced by uh, Michelle Campo. So I know you've interviewed in other times on her book, Ottoman Brothers on the Ottoman Revolution in, uh, in Palestine and how, you know, the word liberty or freedom can mean different things to different people. And, uh, and Bliss gives two speeches to, um, to the students at the, uh, at the college. And one uh, in particular, um, I write a lot about, he's trying to, um, um, he's trying to shape their understanding of what the revolution means and what, what being an, uh, an Ottoman means. And he's basically saying, you're gonna be the future leaders of the, uh, of the nation. And um, that's a heavy burden and you have to, you know, Freedom is great, but so you need to be disciplined also. And he's, he, it's a, he's, he, he um, I was impressed by not only uh, the words, but how he staged the event. The first thing he does in the speech is he turns to the Ottoman flag and salutes it, right? And so he's kind of putting himself in a position of being at one with the students. And I, I was quite impressed with that. And he gives a second speech, a shorter speech, but it's also interesting that you know, one of the great debates um, um, at the time and then among historians in terms of how the Ottoman Revolution was playing out in the Arabic-speaking world was, was this going to be a kind of multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-religious kind of Ottoman nation, or was it going to be Turkish nation and with Turkish language in supreme? And... Um, Bliss um, gives a talk where he basically is saying that unity doesn't mean everyone being exactly the same, you know, and the example he gives is, you know, the place where he found the most uniformity was a prison, you know, where people are all wearing the same thing and are forced to do the same thing. And he said, obviously, we don't want to create a prison. So I, I, I was quite impressed by that. And then, uh, World War One, of course, intervenes. Um, um, other people have written about this. Bliss um, is being urged by the American State Department, the American government, to leave Beirut. Uh, he refuses. Um, there, of course, is a great famine in the whole region. Um, and he manages to keep the place going and a good number of, of his students and faculty and staff alive. Um, and uh, after World War One, he plays a, another kind of role in all this. Um, um, he's quite concerned about what's going to happen at the Paris Peace Conference in terms of um, the, uh, the Arabic-speaking portions of the Ottoman Empire. And he's supportive of, of the nationalists, um, at least to some extent. And he's, he goes off uh, to try to speak to Woodrow Wilson. And he plays a role in, uh, he does speak to Wilson, he plays a role in, in Wilson's eventual creation of the King Crane Commission. Um, and then unfortunately, he dies shortly there afterwards. He was, he, um, he was quite ill. And I think um, my hunch is that the, uh, being in Beirut throughout World War I and, and all the hardships did, um, uh, shortened his life. But I found him a really fascinating character. Well, Beirut during World War One was not certainly a pleasant uh, place to be, given the uh, famine and also the uh, political environment. I mean, we should remember that Jamal Pasha was actively seeking Arab nationalists and hanging them 
to the point that there's a you know the center of Beirut, Martyr Square, is dedicated to those people that died because of their support to Arab nationalism. So I I I would agree with you that Bliss probably um, you know suffered from that environment, and certainly the old period took it all on him and possibly uh, expedite his departure. I want to move to another uh, very important character, perhaps one that is less known to the larger audience. So I was fascinated by the life and trajectory of uh, Abraham uh, Rivani, uh, an immigrant from Syria and a Protestant pastor. Yes, he, um, um, thanks for asking that. Uh, Rivani um, came to the States from what's now Lebanon. Um, he's Christian. Um, uh, without many resources. And he um, uh, comes educated, um, uh, eventually becomes the minister of the Church of the Disciples in uh, Boston, which was quite a prominent congregation at the time. Uh, and um, he, he's, he's quite intent upon becoming American. Um, he, uh, um, uh, his his memoirs, uh, his autobiography talks glowingly about becoming an American, what America means for him. Uh, he uh, he claimed he spoke with an accent, which he felt bad about. The there was a, a portrait of him in one of the Boston newspapers and described him as you know seeming like nothing. I think the, it's not an exact quote, but nothing less than an American gentleman, and. Uh, that he spoke, you know, perfect English with no accent. But at the same time, uh, Rabani was stayed interested in um, in what was going on in uh, in Syria, and great at the time. This is under the Ottomans, and um, uh, even before the Arab nationalism kind of starts for him in some ways. Although he's, I think, involved to, to some extent in some of the immigrant organizations. In 1915, he publishes a book called The Syrian Christ which was quite well regarded at the time. It went through several printings where it, it's sort of a kind of biography of Jesus. But what his basic argument was, well, Jesus was a religious figure, obviously, and universal, but Jesus, the man, was also a Syrian. And he argues that he, Rabani, as a Syrian, can understand Jesus in a way that Americans can't. And he sent, seeks to sort of explain um Jesus to his American audience. But it's actually, I think, a clever way of trying to explain, you know, quote, the East to the West. Um, and um, he can, I think, justifiably be criticized for, like, reproducing some, you know, Orientalist tropes and stereotypes. But at the same time, I was quite taken when I read the book that he uses, he kind of uses those tropes and stereotypes maybe to lull his American audience into kind of uh, um, accepting him. And there's some quite biting critiques of America at the same time, American materialism, of course. But um, just uh, I took down this quote was um, he's talking about part of the, the stereotype in the United States about, you know, Arabs at the time was that they lied, that they were, you know, just basically could not tell the truth. And Rabani says, well, it may be true. We exaggerate some. But then he goes, um, it is unpleasant to an Anglo-Saxon to note how many things an Oriental says, but does not mean. And it is distressing to an Oriental to note how many things the Anglo-Saxon means, but does not say. And that he's really saying, look, you know, 
we may exaggerate, but you actually know what we're feeling and what we're thinking. And he said, you talk to Americans and you never really know what's going on in their minds. And um, and interesting enough, that kind of plays out later for um, Rabani. He's, uh, initially, when the war starts, World War I starts, he's what you might call a, a great Assyrian nationalist. He wants to create a... Um, you know, a, a Syrian state that would include what's current day uh, Lebanon, uh, Syria, and Palestine. Um, but he's he's not particularly interested in creating anything larger than that. Um, but at the end of the war, um, when he goes off to the Paris Peace Conference, he his congregation sends him off with an enthusiastic um, farewell and wishing him well. And his, his congregation was not an Arab American congregation. So there's a lot of American, his congregation was very supportive of his nationalist activities. And he goes to Paris and he joins the Arab nationalist delegation led by Amir Faisal and um, presenting the case for creating a united Arab nation, opposing the um, partition of the uh, region into separate mandates or nations that would separate Lebanon from Syria, for example, or Palestine. and. Um, he um, arrives in Paris really um, optimistic. He's a big fan of Woodrow Wilson. Um, as Eric Manella describes in the Wilsonian moment, he really does believe this is a time when this Wilsonian notion of uh, anti-imperialism will will uh, take reign and that uh, um, national self-determination will follow. And over time, uh, during his stay in Paris, he becomes increasingly disillusioned by what he sees as the betrayal of Arab nationalism and the intent, especially among the British and French, to cut up the region among themselves. And um, um, you could see this in his correspondence with Philip Hitty, where he's, he's gradually becoming more and more pessimistic. But he describes later one particular incident where... Um, He's talking to a French diplomat, and the French. He asks the French diplomat, "Why do you want Syria so much anyway? Well, I mean, what is it you want?" And the diplomat has some kind of response, but then says, "And look, if if we weren't there, if we're not there, you're gonna, you all are gonna slit each other's throats on, or, or you all are gonna slit each other's throats." And Rabani's response to this: This is immediately after World War One, right, which is a European bloodbath is he sort of sputters a response to the French diplomat saying, what are you talking about? What have you been doing on but slitting each other's throats on a monumental scale? But he returns to America and to the best of what I was able to determine, he really stays out of politics at that point. He's, he's interested, you can see in his correspondence, he's keeping track of things. But his... his uh, passion to try, or maybe it was the sense that change was possible, seemed to have really been um, um, weakened by his experience in Paris. I came to believe that the experience in Paris was uh, rather negative for most of the people involved at some point, or it certainly, uh, there was this aura of uh, pessimism despite uh, the pictures where they all seem to uh, be smiling. And I guess, you know, with the famous statements that, well, there was going to be a war after uh, Paris anyway. Uh, and I guess this was internalized by many. Uh, 
let's talk now uh, for a bit, because I think he's one of the most important uh, characters in your book, but and certainly the most known um, across the spectrum of these American uh, Arab nationalists, uh, Charles Crane. Yeah, uh, Crane, um, I know many, many listeners will know uh, something about. Crane was uh, a wealthy American uh, uh, businessman, although he quickly left business and became a kind of philanthropist. Um, he, um, uh, he has an interesting trajectory, I think. He, uh, Crane loved to travel. Um, and uh, this is before World War I. He's, he's traveling through lots of places. He had particularly love for things Russian, but also Chinese. And um, at some point he becomes, uh, also I should say that Crane um, in a lot of ways reminded me of like a, a Renaissance European ruler where Crane was quite generous um, in supporting a, a whole number of scholars and artists. Um, and interestingly, and I think I'll come back to this, not asking for very much in return. He didn't want professorships named for him. Um, what he seemed to like to be able to do was to to write to people he was um, supporting and asking their opinions, giving his opinion, asking for things he, he might read, or more importantly for him, people he might meet on his travels. So what he's really kind of getting out of the philanthropy, which is quite generous and, again, I think it's selfless in a lot of ways, is access to, to these intellectuals. And uh, somewhere along the line, he becomes quite concerned about um, Islam and at first and the caliphate and this notion that somehow Islam was was unified and that it posed some threat to to the West. And um, he uh, eventually, which I described briefly in the book, he um, discovers a, a Dutch Orientalist, the leading Dutch Orientalist of the time, uh, Christian Snooker Grungy. And um, Snuka Grungy, um, and he become quite close. Um, Crane will uh, uh, fund a, a trip of, of Snuka Grungy through the United States uh, um, in the early years of world, before American entry into World War I, um, where uh, Snuka Grungy is talking to American audiences about Islam. He had, uh, his view was that people were totally, you know, this, this Western fear of the caliphate he thought was totally misplaced and that um, the, the, the caliph um, in, uh, in Islam was not comparable to the Pope and that uh, um, didn't hold political power or sway and certainly not in, in this period of time. And uh, he sort of calms Crane down and Crane becomes interested in, in, in uh, the region. Um, he's not necessarily sophisticated but he's interested. And um, Crane is also in Paris during the Paris Peace Conference. Uh, Crane was um, a major supporter of Woodrow Wilson and um, uh, a major financial con contributor to his campaigns. And um, Wilson um, taps Crane and um, um, to, to, to um, go along with uh, Henry, Henry King to co-chair a commission to go to Palestine and, and Syria, Lebanon, to see what, what the uh, Arab people themselves, the Arabic-speaking peoples themselves wanted. 
um, as a post-war kind of uh, settlement. And that's the famous King Crane Commission. Um, it's there that he um, comes into contact with Arab nationalists and forms a kind of um, a deep relationship with some of them, uh, particularly Abdel Rahman uh, Shabanda. Uh, and uh, uh, he maintains that re- he, he becomes quite supportive of the Arab nationalist position. Again, how how deep his understanding is of that nationalism isn't clear. But his support is there, both um, uh, morally and politically. Um, he's uh, very concerned. He's quite upset that the King Crane Commission report is cla- is not publicized. He's worked behind the scenes to try to get it publicized if he can. But in particular, you see that in the 1925 revolt, he's quite supportive of Shabander. And and the revolt, both in terms of providing financial support to uh, Shabander and his family, but also trying to generate American support for the uh, the, the the Syrian uh, uh, nationalists. Um, and just following through with uh, with Crane is, um, uh, I mean, it's it's not totally fair, but somehow the shorthand I, I use for myself is that. In my own opinion, and this, of course, is my opinion, is, you know, Crane does all the right things for all the wrong reasons. It's it's not necessarily if you try to follow his reasoning, it's not always clear. But he in my view, and it's again my value judgment, he tends to end up on the right side of things, except when you then hit the early 1930s. And you see a, a kind of tragic turn for Crane. And, you know, Crane in a lot of the literature now is remembered as just this rabid anti-Semite who uh, supported Hitler. And um, what you see with Crane earlier is Crane was certainly an anti-Semite. He was a man of his class and and his position, but it was a, it was a particular kind of anti-Semitism. He, it was more a social anti-Semitism. He didn't like the... Um, East European Jewish immigrants who started to enter the United States in large numbers in 1881 and, you know, populated places like the Lower East Side. He had a much higher opinion of of uh, American Jews of German Jewish background. These tended to be now Jews who were born in the United States, who were the descendants of an earlier immigration wave from Germany. And so Crane was a major supporter of, of appointing Louis Brandeis a Supreme Court justice. Um, one of the academics he supported was the Columbia Orientalist Richard Gottheil, who was Jewish and, uh, and, and one of the early Zionist leaders. And as well as um, uh, Lillian Wald, who was uh, uh, a nurse, but also one of the uh, pioneers of the American settlement movement, and is very famous for creating. Uh, the Henry Street Settlement in New York. Um, Crane um, Crane uh, uh, was supportive of her, visited with her in New York. Uh, I suspect financially, I, I know financially contributed to the Henry Street Settlement. So Crane, Crane was anti-Semitic, but it, he had close relationships with certain Jews who he thought were of the right type. But by the early 30s, um, you know, it, it's... I'm not a psychologist, and I think, you know, it's, of course, very hard to psychoanalyze someone who's dead. But um, Crane seems to undergo um, a decline and becomes, um, I'm not necessarily speaking about the term in a clinical sense, becomes quite paranoid and 
especially some of this is the Russian Revolution, but not only, and becomes quite concerned about uh, a Jewish conspiracy. And he lapses into just weird kind of fantasies. And um, he's easily discredited at this point. And of course, his historical kind of reputation is shattered. But it also means that in the um, 30s, particularly by the mid-30s, when uh, the situation for Palestinians was becoming acute, and with the beginning of the the, Pal- the, the, the Palestinian revolt of 36, Crane is really a non-entity. He he's really can't, doesn't have any of the sway he used to have. So I see him as a, as a, as a kind of tragic figure in this. I teach courses on uh, global history of conspiracy theories, which is some sort of a topic that I developed uh, in the past few years. And um, when I was reading the book, I I started thinking about Crane uh, uh, in terms of like some contemporary characters. And and I came to uh, a parallel with, uh, you know, the famous actress Whoopi Goldberg, who I deeply appreciate in her work. But then she started developing all of these ideas, denying the Holocaust or making it, uh, you know, claiming that it was not about race or whatever. And and I think, like, there is this kind of sense at some point where some people end, uh, you know, go down the rabbit hole and whatever they've done earlier then just disappears because, you know, these ideas are very problematic indeed. Now, in the book, there are other characters, and some of them fascinating, like uh, William Neal. We, we could talk about him uh, for an entire podcast, but I want to focus here on uh, Amin Rihani. Uh, in his own uh, right, he's actually quite a celebrity, even though I believe that his wife was probably more known than himself. Uh, he's an Arab nationalist who, in the end, uh, came to support... Abdelaziz Ibn Saud and also Wahhabism, despite he was very secular uh, himself. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about this controversial figure and also to what extent he was relevant in Arab-American nationalism. Yeah, I I think Rouhani was very relevant. And um, I share with you, he's a really fascinating character. He's... um, you know, it, 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 my sense of reading his correspondence with a number of people and seeing him pop up in other collections, he was very charismatic. Um, um, people liked him, also flirtatious. But he was, um, he had a presence. And he also, was, as you said, was had a reputation at this time. He uh, His book of Khalid, uh, uh, which was written and published in English, was very well received. He was His poetry was published. Um, and, um, he had connections with the American government and state department as well. Um, he, um, I think like Rabani, I mean, one of the things I'm kind of interested in just as an aside is you would think that Rabani and Rahani would have had a close relationship because although there were some differences between them, they, um, they were involved in a lot of the same political activities. The Arab American community in the United States was not terribly large. They both had a relationship with Philip Hitty, but there's almost no contact, direct contact I've ever found between the two, to almost to the point where I think it's intentional. I think they maybe just didn't like each other. They were very different in terms of personality. Um, um, you get the sense that Rabani was very much wanting to be the gentleman and you know, Rahani was a bohemian in, in spirit. And um, 
Um, but Rouhani um, um, supports, with some reservations, Faisal and, and the Arab nationalism that's emerging with the Arab revolt um, against the Ottomans during World War I. Um, and like Rabani, he's quite upset by the what I call the betrayal of Arab nationalism at the Paris Peace Conference and the imposition of the mandate system. But unlike Rabani, he um, he becomes um, he, he doesn't he doesn't become demoralized. If anything, he kind of becomes um, um, quite animated by the, somehow feeling he has a role to play in um, in saving the Arab nation. Um, and and I write a little bit about, again, without wanting to, to psycho, psychoanalyze someone, but in some ways he, he begins to sort of take on the life of his character from the book of Khalid in, in, in ways that are quite interesting and, and strange. But he, um, in the early 20s, he travels to the Arabian Peninsula. And, and through the region, but this is going to produce a number of uh, travel books um, a, a few years later. But he's, he seems to go there with this romantic notion that somehow he's going to unite the Arabian leaders and uh, somehow pose a challenge to the British and French, unclear how. Um, he, he does make the British and French nervous. The British, when you read some of their correspondence, the government correspondence, they're keeping tabs of him, but they generally see him as kind of a dreamer. They're not they're they're, they're keeping tabs on him, but they're not too worried. Um, but I think the most important thing is that's where he meets uh, Ibn Saud for the first time. And um, I also was at first was had trouble figuring out what attracted him to Ibn Saud and what attracted him to, to Wahhabism because it seems so out of character with himself. And you can look back at the book of Khalid and, and the roots of it there. But it, for me, I was I was quite influenced by a book by, uh, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, uh, Henri Lazare, uh, on the making of Salafism and Islamic reform in the 20th century, where he talks about uh, Rashid Rida, uh, the great uh, Islamic uh, um, thinker and writer. And Ritter goes through a lot of the same transformation where Ritter also becomes supportive of, uh, of uh, Abdulaziz ibn Saud and Wahhabism and is in uh, Saudi Arabia for a while. Um, and uh, I think Lazare's argument, which I, I was convinced by and was, I think it's true of Rahani, is what they were attracted to was that ibn Saud seemed like a strong figure and that he had somehow managed to avoid having a mandate imposed on him that Saudi Arabia was emerging as, a, as an independent nation, um, developing treaty relations with Western powers. And that I think, and this important to remember is Saudi Arabia before oil becomes a big factor. And I think um, for Rouhani, he sees Ibn Saud as the savior. Um, and so you see a shift in his thinking um, yeah, in the uh, World War One period, when he's talking about the Arab revolt, and he's kind of got notions of a great Arab nation uniting the Arabic-speaking uh, peoples of the region, he um, sort of sees the um, that the elite of this nation are going to be the um, uh, the Arabs of uh, of Greater Syria. That they're more civilized. He doesn't use those terms. More cultured, I should say more more uh, educated, 
and that they'll provide the expertise that this nation will need. And would he sort, but then uh, there's a switch by the 30s, and he sees, or late 20s, and he sees Ibn Saud as really the person who's going to come to the rescue of um, the Arabs now under British and French mandate. And in particular, um, in, in 1929, there's an outbreak of, of, of violence in Palestine. Uh, you can some, some consider that the first really Arab revolt there um, against the Brit against the, the Zionists and the British. Um, and um, for the first time in the United States, following the, that 1929 incident, there's the first time, at least that I found, where there's there's debate about Palestine in the United States. Um, um, Rahani uh, engages not in. Uh, with a with a major Zionist leader, both of them are asked by the New York Times, essentially in one of their publications, to sort of state their purposes and in a way respond to each other. But also the Foreign Policy Association uh, organizes a series of luncheons around the country uh, to, where uh, Zionists and uh, Arab nationalists presented their views. But Rahani was always a, the person who they chose. Um, Rahani also was able to get access to the American Secretary of State at this period of time. So Rahani emerges as the leading spokesperson for the Palestinian cause. Um, but his message is really that Ibn Saud is going to come to the rescue, that um, um, that that um, he will eventually intervene and that intervention will be um, powerful. And he's very careful in his wording. But he's definitely there's the implication there that if necessary, they'll be Ibn Saud will there will be a military intervention somehow. Um, so I think he was quite taken with Ibn Saud's strength. Um, uh, Rahani also the depression, the economic depression in 1929, you know, hits the United States very very hard, and uh, it diverts attention away from all these issues. Um, you know, the unemployment rate in the United States was conservatively estimated to be 25% in the winter of 1932-33. And in some regions, some of the more industrialized cities of the country, it was well over 50%. So the that sapped a lot of the uh, wind out of our attention away from these kind of issues like Arab nationalism. Rouhani, uh, who was going back and forth to what's now Lebanon and, and the states, um, relocates there for a while and dies tragically in a in an accident in September 1940. So he's also absent during uh, the later debate over over Palestine. Um, but he's a really interesting character and and leaves a huge amount of written material uh, for people to look at, both published and unpublished. Amongst all of these men, there's actually a woman uh, that attracted my attention, Elizabeth Titzel. Uh, I guess uh, widely unknown to many. Yeah, she's a, if, if she's known now, it's known. Um, you can find some information on her on the Brown University website. They have a on the they have a website or some pages dedicated to women uh, pioneers in archaeology. She's briefly she's got a, an entry there. She um, uh, eventually would become the uh, assistant and then associate curator of the Brooklyn Museum. Uh, in New York City, which, if you know, the Brooklyn Museum has an extensive Egyptian antiquities collection, which he was 
partly responsible for building. But um, I had no idea who she was when I started my research and uh, try to be quick about the story. Um, I wanted to go through a magazine called Asia Magazine, which was uh, published throughout this, the time period I was looking at and was um, seemed like the audience they, it was aimed at were business people and kind of Americans who had some interest in the East in general, including the Middle East. And it was not indexed, and uh, I wanted to go through all the journals. And um, uh, Hampshire College is part of a consortium with other colleges and the University of Massachusetts in the region, and they share kind of library resources. And there's um, um, there's a storage facility for old periodicals that's located in uh, in the mountains near here in an old Strategic Air Command uh, bunker. And um, they had all the run of Asia, and uh, I asked if I could just come in and sit there and go through it. So I was sitting there for several days going through the magazine. And at first I saw a couple of articles or an article by her. Um, she was, uh, uh, in, in 1922, she was a young woman in her 30s, early 30s. And she had been working for Asia Magazine. And near the end of her tenure, they helped her take a trip through um through uh, Palestine, through uh, Syria, Lebanon, and she and Jordan, or Transjordan at the time, and she describes, you know, her trip, her travels. She meets, um, and, and you know, and the, well, those stories I was reading were interesting, but not, you know, they were interesting, well-written travel literature. But at the time, Americans seemed to have an insatiable interest in reading about Bedouin uh, feasts. So, you know, there, there are zillions of these articles and she has one. It's well written, but it sort of fits into that. And then all of a sudden I come across this article called The Two Promised Land, two meaning T-O-O. And it's uh, it's an essay about Palestine. And I, it was published in 1923. And I'm reading it and like my eyes are popping out of my sockets because I, I I I still think it's just an amazingly insightful piece. You know, she um, for the time, you know, she I felt like the piece is remarkably sort of free, particularly at the time of any anti-Semitism, of any Orientalism. She um, she's traveling through Palestine and she's she she's looking at the uh, the young, you know, in Hebrew, the Chalitzim, the pioneers coming and 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 uh, beginning to build uh, rebuild in their terms Palestine building Jewish settlement and creating a new Jewish in their head uh, you know a, a new Jewish nation reclaiming Hebrew you know and uh, she's quite impressed by them um, but she's also looking at the Arabic speaking people in Palestine the great majority of people who call, call them Palestinians she calls them Arabs and she says, look, you know, this isn't going to go well, that um, she, uh, unlike a lot of what at the time, she's looking at the uh, the Palestinians and she says, look, there's the beginning of, I think she calls, uh, she doesn't necessarily use the term, but what she's describing is, I think she says a patriotism developing is the term she uses, which she's really speaking about. She understands that there's a, there's a nationalism developing there. Uh, a, not only an Arab nationalism, but a particular Palestinian nationalism. And she says that, um, um, she predicts that this is not going to be uh, a pretty picture. 
that she she sees this as a disaster. And in 1923, she um, um, she sort of foresees the what the British are going to do in 1939 with the White Paper, where the British essentially who um, uh, withdraw their support, which to Zionism, which which was first presented with the, the Balfour Declaration. And I read this piece and thought it's amazing. You know, I I I had read lots of other things written at the time about Palestine, and to this day, I haven't read anything like that. Um, to the best of my uh, ability, I don't think she wrote anything else on the contemporary Middle East. She there she has a number of publications, but they tend to be about Egyptian antiquities, and um, it's very hard to find material on her. Um, it's also really interesting. It's um, reading the correspondence from various people I, I was looking at. Um, the only reference to the article I saw was in the Crane Papers, where someone, uh, a Crane, one of Crane's uh, friends, says, "Hey, did you see that article in Asia?" And that was it. So I thought the the article seemed to have no impact, but I was just struck by how absolutely brilliant it was. Um, so she, I just found her really an intriguing character and someone who deserves a lot more attention, I think. Yes. And I actually myself then found the article and read it. And I wondered while I was reading it, if uh, her foresight was kind of neglected because she was a woman. And perhaps if the article had been written by a man, maybe someone would have uh, used it or maybe just, uh, you know, wrote comments and, uh, uh, you know, exchange views and opinions. But uh, you're right. I mean, essentially, the article dies with itself after being published and no one cares about it, despite the foresight was very accurate, obviously. No, I think that definitely being a woman at the time put her in a, a huge disadvantage. And... Um... Um, even you see that even when she goes to work with the Brooklyn Museum, um, she, uh, if I'm remembering the story right, she, uh, during World War II, the director of the museum is uh, is in the military, so she's essentially running the place. And I think her reward is she's she's made associate curator, but she's never kind of I think given her due. Um, that's so why I think it's a really good idea that Brown and the people of Brown developed that webpage on her. I have a couple more questions. And <laughs> the first one I want to ask is about Zionism, which we just mentioned in relation to Elizabeth Titzel. Uh, what was the role of Zionism in shaping the ideas of the individuals we just uh, mentioned? That's a good question, and it's a hard one. And, and I know... Um, something like DC's work, he sees Zionism as being a stronger factor in the World War I period than I do. Um, um, so we, we differ a bit there, although I'm a big admirer of his work. Um, for, for most of the period I cover, I would say it's not really a major factor in shaping the ideas or narratives. For Bliss, as far as I could tell, it wasn't really much of a factor. But of course, he he died so early that it, it you wouldn't expect it to be. Um, Rahani and Rabani are from the start, you know, um, even in the when America enters World War One, they're opposed to Zionism. But at that early stage, they don't really see it as a threat. You know, the American Zionist movement was very small. And um, I think um, it's it's easy for us now with looking back 
to forget how surprised people were by the Balfour Declaration and eventually by Woodrow Wilson's support of the Balfour Declaration. Uh, William Yale, who, who you mentioned, also was um, uh, serving as an American military intelligence officer, uh, um, an observer with the British Arab office in Cairo during the war. And when he hears, and, and um, his initial response to the Balfour Declaration was, this is crazy. You know, his response was, this is going to, he eventually changes his mind, but he goes, this is crazy. The whole place is going to blow up, that this is a big mistake. And um, Wilson himself, Wilson is cagey, and what Wilson's complicated because Wilson, among other things, had a very difficult relationship with his Secretary of State, Robert Lansing. Um, they didn't; they were not close, or let's say that there wasn't a lot of mutual trust. And um, when uh, Zionist organizations are coming to Lansing and saying, after speaking to Wilson and saying to to him. Uh, to Lansing that the president supports us. Lansing writes to Wilson to check if it's true, right? You know, he just can't quite wrap his head around it. So I think at first, you know, it, it's not seen as such a threat. Certainly for Crane and Rahani, by the later 20s and the early 30s, they do see it as, as a threat. And for Rahani, um, what, what I see is that um, Rahani, I, I feel, more than almost any of them, uh, in by the uh, late twenties, early thirties, has really developed a quite coherent um, Arab nationalist narrative that the um, including Ibn Saud, but where Palestine and the struggle in Palestine is is embedded in that. So he he embeds his defense of uh, the Palestinian position in this larger. Uh, Arab nationalist uh, narrative. So I think for him, it becomes quite, um, you know, quite important, but not initially, you know, they just, um, you know, that um, it, it's again, hard to imagine, but the, the the American Zionists were not as, were not that strong. They, they were going to get stronger. And just as an aside, you know, the, the, the American Zionists perceived themselves as weak and, you know, and and this is is you can see sometimes in the historiography too, where historians present them as weak, and in a lot of ways, you know, they they, they of course are a minority population, a small population in the United States, but the Arab American population in the United States was even smaller, and um, the resources that the uh, Zionists could bring to bear, even in the early '30s, far outweighed any of the resources that. Um, uh, that Arab nationalist supporters in the United States could bring at this point. So they were also at a huge disadvantage as time went on. In the end, uh, is there a legacy left by these American Arab nationalists? You know, that's a really hard question. And <clears throat> one I've been, had to think about. Um, um, I think that one legacy um, and this I'll just echo um, uh, Elizabeth Thompson's book, uh, How the West Stole Democracy from uh, from the Arabs. Yeah, I think, you know, it's important, I think, for our, I, I'm struck by how many people I speak to who, you know, are not experts in this area, but are, you know, educated, college educated, and some with PhDs and other fields. 
who, you know, you say you're interested in Arab nationalism, they have no idea what you're talking about. And, you know, and especially if you say in this period, early period, they really have no idea what you're talking about. And you sort of sense what they're thinking maybe is Iran or maybe they're thinking, you know, Yasser Arafat or who, you know, it's 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 kind of amazing how little of, the, of this history is known to the general American public. But I think it's important for America to understand there once was a time when America had a, was viewed differently by the Arab, Arabic speaking peoples in the Middle East, where I think for a lot of complicated reasons, uh, one being that America's interest imperially was not in that region very much at that time. The America was seen as something, a hope for something better. And, um, you know, that, that in a sense, the legacy is it could have turned out differently, which, of course, the me- means the future can be different than the present as well. So I think it's the point Thompson was making. I, I would also say, in a funny kind of way, there's a lesson from Crane. Um, going back to something I mentioned earlier, I, I was struck by Crane's philanthropy and support for, for, for the Arab nationalist movement, too, is that until very late in his life when he's in decline, he really doesn't ask for anything in return. Um, you know, there's a very famous story, just as an aside, that, uh, you know, that um, dealing with the uh, discovery of oil in Saudi Arabia and ex- exploitation, a key person there was an American you know, scientist uh, named Twitchell, you know, and um, um, his first name just went out of my mind, Carl Twitchell, I'm sorry. And Crane actually was the one who provided the financial support for Twitchell to go to the region for at first to look for water resources. And um, apparently Crane was offered some of the oil revenue. Uh, Twitchell became quite a rich man and Crane turned it down. Um, Crane remarkably didn't seem to want very much in return. And also, again, until the decline, I was struck by his willingness because Crane had a pretty healthy ego. Um, Crane was willing to take direction from people like Shawbender and stuff that he was he understood he was in a patron position. He was supporting the money and he liked that, but he didn't try to impose his own strategy or ideas on them. And I think that's a lesson too for allies. And then um, just, you know, in terms of nationalism in general, just a kind of observation, maybe more than legacy. It's I'm, I'm kind of struck by the fact that nationalist narratives can link together nationals as well as non-nationals, like people like Crane. Um, and that it creates communities that transcend the national identity itself. That's it's just a thought I had kind of recently, and uh, to think about some more. But I, I, when you ask what's the legacy, that's at least what comes to mind. This was uh, Aaron Berman, author of America's Arab Nationalists: From the Ottoman Revolution to the Rise of Hitler, published by Routledge in 2023. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Roberto.